0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Super Nintendo era of Final Fantasy games. This is just your brief reminder that this conversation was recorded a couple of years ago, but should still be totally fresh to anyone going through Final Fantasy IV for the first time or who's going through it for the 25th time. So we appreciate you all for listening in. Don't forget that if you're listening on a podcast app and you're wondering where the next episode is, it'll be out Tomorrow, But if you can't wait that long for the next 50 episodes that are all available, you can go to patreon.com slash ffweekly and get them for just $1. All the episodes become available. Very much appreciate you. And if you are interested in even more Final Fantasy talk, other video game, especially RPG talk, I'm starting to play Child of Light, stuff like that. You can head over to patreon.com slash productions Also talking Star Wars, professional wrestling, comic book movies, going through the DCEU right now, watching Star Wars Visions and Marvel's What If. We're having a great time over there with a very positive community. Again, that's patreon.com slash DC Productions. Welcome to Final
1: Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman.
0: And on this episode, we'll be discussing the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy IV, released in 1991 on the Super Nintendo, and then again on the PlayStation in the compilation of Final Fantasy Chronicles in 2001. It would then again later be re-released in a totally 3D remake for the Nintendo DS in 2007. It was written and produced by Hironobu Sakaguchi with art by Yoshitaka Amano and music by Nobuo Uematsu. There is one additional notable member of the team here, Takashi Tokita, is credited as being the lead designer and a writer in the game, according to his Wikipedia page. (laughs) For the first three Final Fantasy games, he worked on graphic design, testing, and sound effects, respectively, before becoming lead designer on Final Fantasy IV in 1991. Tokita wanted to make a career as a theater actor, but working on Final Fantasy IV made him decide to become a great creator, in quotes, of video games. He was one of only 14 people working on this game. He would go on to direct Chrono Trigger and Parasite Eve. So pretty solid resume for Mr. Tokita. Okay. With this being the first game for the series on a new system, and with it also being the first game in the series that is widely considered to be important across the industry to be one of the best entries, if we may use such a word, uh, we're going to change up our formula a little bit here on the podcast. I want to start by making some notes that we usually do at the end, but just to put into context the conversation on the game we're about to have, I think it's worth pointing that Nintendo Power has ranked Final Fantasy IV in their top 100 in 1997, ranking it the ninth best game of all time, In 2005 ranking it the 28th. IGN on its top 100 lists in 2003 ranked it 9th, in 2005 ranked it 26th, and in 2007 moved it all the way back to 55th, which is interesting. In the first two lists it was the highest rated Final Fantasy game for IGN, now it sits behind 6, 7, and Tactics. According to a 2006 Famitsu Reader Poll, Final Fantasy IV is the sixth greatest video game ever made, and it also appeared on top 100 lists for EGM in 2001 and 2006, GameSpot in 2005, and GameFAQs in 2005, 2009, and 2014. That is a consensus that this is a good, at the very least, a very good video game. Another huge addition that this game brings, and probably one of the main reasons it appears on all of those lists, is that it has a cast of characters that has been memorable from the moment we were all introduced to them. Until this very day. And, you know, we say at the beginning of each one, when we start on a new game, we'll be talking about the plot themes and characters. But this is the first time that third thing is really going to be true. We're going to get deep into these characters. And so each time we're introduced to a new main character, we're going to take a minute to study them a little bit, which we haven't been doing in previous iterations because probably wasn't really worth the time so that'll be a little bit different and i think add a new element that we haven't really had so far to the podcast which is doing character studies
1: right i think we were able to do that a bit with characters <laughs> like unai and zand and uh, doga and the like Pe- people in these games who who had something of a history but main character wise a lot of them didn't even Minwu and joseph and them there was some to talk about but not a lot it was pretty thin these characters however they they have some depth they have some arcs and it'll be fun to finally get to talk about some of that stuff with a little more gusto the other thing we want to do differently this time is usually at the end we think about a big question so is there free will in final fantasy one we talked about society versus individualism in final fantasy 2 we talked about fear of death and a sense of adventure in final fantasy 3 This time, we're going to look at one of our big questions right here at the beginning so that we can talk about it throughout. So what's that big question we're going to be thinking about, Drew? Well,
0: it's like you said, it's a big question, so there are a lot of moving parts to it, but... I want to put into perspective the very end of the game. The, loosely speaking, the going to the moon part of this game that is probably the most famous divisive part of it. There are people who still absolutely love Final Fantasy IV, but don't like that it turns into kind of a sci-fi, crazy, what some people might refer to as psychobabble type of story at the end.
1: But... (laughs) That seems strange. Why would they not like that? That's fantastic.
0: I totally agree. And we're going to get into a number of reasons why I think that that's true. But I think the main one is that it backs up this central theme, which is that the larger threat that has to come from someplace bigger than just the countries who are at war with each other throughout this game Game of Thrones does something very similar with the White Walkers, and George R. R. Martin has talked about this. They are a symbol of things like, say, global warming, something where we're all fighting amongst each other to have this little bit of extra land or these little bit of extra rights, and a lot of us may be ignoring the much larger threat that could wipe us all out, so something like the White Walkers, or in this particular case, the Lunarian threat. So... The fact that the threat becomes so big and people are unaware of it or not paying any attention to it, not realizing that it's causing all of this chaos in their world, I think is a strong thematic element that makes everything else throughout the game make sense. So with that in mind, let's think about that threat on the horizon so that each time we come up against it, we can recognize that it's been playing a role the entire time. It's one of the reasons we wanted to bring it up right at the beginning. Uh, Sort of like how Game of Thrones actually does begin with showing you a White Walker, even though they don't become an actual threat for like six and a half seasons.
1: (laughs) It's also worth remembering that the other Final Fantasies did, as we've already talked about, foreshadow the threat that would seem to come, if not out of nowhere, that, that suddenly showed up as we approached the end. So Garland was always Chaos, and he was at the Temple of Chaos, and the Cloud of Darkness was always coming, and that came from the prophecy of the Golgans, right? So in, in the same way, there is some foreshadowing in Final Fantasy IV. If nothing else, the two moons are there the whole time. You're always looking at those two moons, especially in the DS version.
0: Exactly right. I mean, they give you the two moons right up front, so that just goes to show you're looking at the threat. Whether you realize it or not, you're looking at it, which I think is pretty phenomenal storytelling, quite frankly. It's this incredible aesthetic that immediately puts you into a new world and a new time, much like what it's paying homage to in Star Wars Episode Four. But instead of it just being that really cool to look at, but not having anything to do with the plot or theme like in Star Wars, it has huge significance to the plot and theme. So we'll get to all of that, of course, once we get to the end of the game. Before we get to the start of the actual plot, though, let's set this up a little bit with our own personal experiences. Mine is far more ambiguous, so I'll just quickly say I barely remember the context of my original experiences with this game. I know I watched you play the whole thing, as was the case with a lot of the early ones where I would just watch you play the games and experience the stories and, you know, we would often read or whatever. Usually you would read them and we would just go through the games, but I was young enough. That's all I remember was watching you play the game. That's it.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. As, as I remember it, we had gone to Texas and that's where we were introduced to Final Fantasy III, as it was called at the time. And when we came back home... We bought Final Fantasy 3 and Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy 2. And so we really wanted to get back to 3, so we played that adventure first. And then, and we'd already played Final Fantasy Mystic Quest at this point, so we're starting to realize there's this whole big franchise. Uh, I had played Final Fantasy 1 kind of at the beginning, but I had to go back to it. And then it was, so I think we did Final Fantasy 6, parentheses 3, then we did Chrono Trigger, and then we did Final Fantasy 4, parenthesis 2. And it was just another series of staying up late and reading to each other and uh switching off the controller every now and then and and yeah that's that's how i remember the experience it's also worth remembering that the north american version was the easy version there is an easy version and hard version we'll get into that more when we get into the gameplay episode but there are certain gameplay mechanics that don't show up in the north american version and there are certain things that are censored in the north american version
0: right So despite my not remembering all of that full context of when exactly we played it as clearly as you did, I do really remember the experiences of the game, and that's obviously the case with you as well. So I think this will also be the first time that in this podcast where we're both drawing very heavily on our original experiences with the game, which did come on the Super Nintendo, which as I've learned later in life, as you said, was kind of a censored, easier version of the game. But still, we—I played through the DS version in a kind of a weird time in my life, and I don't remember it as well. So we're mostly going to be talking about the original Super Nintendo, like Final Fantasy II.
1: And and I have gone back, and I I haven't played the DS version, but I I've seen videos of people playing the DS version. For me, the the indelible version of Final Fantasy IV is the Final Fantasy II North American release. Though I do like now playing the port where you can have the hard version so you can get some of those extra uh, abilities and whatnot.
0: Yeah, and characters swear more in those versions, which is also kind of fun. Sure,
1: (laughs) sure. So Final Fantasy IV starts with Lord Commander Cecil Harvey leading his Red Wings back to the Kingdom of Baron. They've just been on a mission. Immediately we get that Cecil and his crew are not happy with what they've done at the behest of the King. And then we're treated to these flashbacks and we see the Dark Knight Cecil leading the Red Wings into a temple in the town of Mycidia and the mages of Mycidia are defending their crystal the crystal of water and they're demanding an explanation for why Cecil is there and Cecil says that the King of Baron has decided that you Mycidians know too much about the secrets of the, the crystal and we're taking it from you which seems to me like a pretty flimsy excuse and yeah. then they I, it was never clear to me in the Super Nintendo version whether or not they killed those mages I don't think they did I think they just beat them down and then they take the crystal and go.
0: So yeah, as we're getting all of this, I want to note a couple of things that were immediately introduced to here. The first being a fleet of airships, the Red Wings, which come with their own super awesome theme, which we'll of course talk about in the music episode, but it sets the stage for a completely different aesthetic from the first three games that we've seen. A fleet of airships is not something we've seen before. It tells us that there's something extra going on with the technology in this world. This would come to be an important plot point throughout the existence of multiple airships and the air force of Baron. So that's something we get right away. The theme, as I mentioned, underlying that our main character behind this memory that Ira just described, he's got kind of a Darth Vader-like theme playing underneath him because Cecil, a very different character than what we've seen as our leads before, fits the Dark Knight trope, which is a twist on the basic fantasy formula, having that kind of character at the helm of your story, so to speak. (laughs) And the other thing is just, inside of all of that, immediate internal conflict. This game would become known, whether enough people would play it or not that it would impact the industry well enough, it would become known as one of the very first great stories inside of a video game. And I think one of the reasons why is that it has such successful internal character conflict. And you see it in the very first scene with the main character. So, pretty powerful way to open in a cinematic style we'd never seen in games before, with a type of character we'd never really seen in a story type of game before, setting some new standards right out of the gate.
1: And we see that conflict throughout the game. He is constantly right here from the beginning to the next mission that we'll talk about in a minute, to everything he does. He's he's questioning why he took up the Dark Sword, why he became a Dark Knight and then later when we get into his big status quo shift when he becomes the paladin he is giving up the dark to to champion the light but there's still some of that darkness in him which is further emphasized in the Dissidia games where Cecil gets to switch back and forth between the paladin and the dark knight so he represents the holistic nature of yin and yang as opposed to just one side or the other as opposed to just good or evil. He gets to represent both light and dark. He is a character who is extraordinarily protective of his friends. So when we get some character deaths later on, that affects him strongly. And he's got a bit of a chauvinistic streak to his protectiveness. His childhood friend Rosa, he is protective of and does not want her getting in the conflict. And later when we meet Rydia, he wants to protect her and and tries to get her to not get involved in the conflict. So there are that, two
0: scenes late in the game that highlight these really well, so I'm going to jump yeah. forward really quick. There's one where right before the final conflict, Cecil tries to send Rosa and Rydia away, and I was appalled playing back through it. As a kid, I didn't remember yeah. that as well. Playing back through it, I was like, dude,
1: yeah. how dare you? Honestly, and it shows that he's still got growth. He, he's still got ways that he can grow. He, there, he hasn't learned all the lessons. He's not the perfect good guy, to be sure.
0: Right. But then as as you mentioned, the two sides of the coin, the fact that it's re- revealed again, plot, spoiler, plot, spoiler, but that Golbez is his brother. He ends up kind of pondering later in the game. Could I just have easily become Golbez if I had been, right. you know, and we've talked about that individualism versus societal impact, if I had just been groomed the proper way, because he knows he's got this darkness inside of him as well.
1: So our Red Wings land in Baron, and Lord Cecil Harvey takes the crystal of water to the king. He's greeted by a guy who appears to be uh, an advisor or maybe an officer, Bagan, B-A-I-G-A-N, led into the throne room where first he tells Cecil to wait outside, and he takes the crystal in and gives it to the king, and then the king invites him in. But before Cecil comes in, Bagan says to the king, Cecil's starting to question your authority. He wonders why we had to do this, and so that begins to prompt the next thing that happens. So Cecil comes in, you know, to give the crystal over. You did a good job, Cecil, and then he questions the king. He says, the you know, the Mycidians didn't do anything to deserve this. They didn't fight back, which strikes me as odd. I wonder why the Mycidians didn't fight back. Is the town of mages maybe because they knew they'd lose?
0: Or it's an Obi-Wan thing, strike me down and I shall become even more powerful than you can imagine.
1: (laughs) Well, the Mycidians do have, uh, they've got a prophecy that we'll talk about more here in a bit. So anyway, uh, he says, you know, the Mycidians didn't fight back, they didn't do anything to deserve this. It's their crystal, why did we do this? And the king says, you dare question me, Cecil, after I took you in, after all I've done for you? Because Cecil also is an orphan.
0: Here it's where it's revealed that he was raised by the king, right? Through showing, through a nice bit of exposition, through dialogue that isn't clunky. I like that. I'm a big fan of that.
1: So the king strips Cecil of his rank as commander of the Red Wings. He needs to go to the Valley of Mist and rid it of the mist dragon that lurks about there. Throughout the North American version, they call them the monsters over and over again. So the, the mist dragon is a monster but in the <coughs> remakes they call it the Idolon of Mist or Idolon of Mist uh, so that's one of those language upgrades as Cecil is objecting to his sudden demotion Cain comes in and tries to talk the king down and the king is just as furious with Cain about this and says well if you're so hot to help your buddy out you can go with him so they're kicked out of the throne room Cain says, I'm not going to let you do this alone. You're my friend. I'm going to help you out. I'll take care of everything. You've just been on a mission. You go to bed. We're introduced to two more characters as Cecil walks through the castle to go to his tower room. First, Rosa. Rosa also grew up in the castle. I don't think it's clearly said that she was an orphan, but we don't know who her parents are, which kind of makes it seem like the King of Baron is collecting children and <laughs> training them up as Final Fantasy classes. I think he is. That's a little creepy. Uh, and Rosa asks, you know, what's wrong? Cause Cecil's all down on himself. And he doesn't really want to talk about it. Uh, a few steps later, we run into Sid. Sid has created the airships for the Kingdom of Baron. He's happy. Sid's back, or excuse me, he's happy. Cecil's back. Sid is an older character. He's kind of a father figure throughout Final Fantasy IV. He's very protective of Cain and Rosa and Cecil, and he's also very protective of his ships. He he calls. Cecil and his and his crew, a bunch of louts who don't know how to handle an airship and this and that and he's one of those big outspoken characters. He looks a lot to me like pirates in Castle in the Sky and in Porco Rosso. Sure.
0: <laughs> he's got that great big beard, great great big orange kinda red beard. Uh, right. he's got the goggles that cover his eyes, which is a big steampunk uh-huh. thing.
1: Big mouth. Yeah. Lots of teeth. Yeah. So then Cecil goes up to his tower room and he broods for a while. And this might be a good time to talk about these three other characters we've been introduced to and do a little bit of character study. So, who do you want to start with? Sid, Rosa, or Kane? Let's talk about Sid. All right. Sid Polendinia. P O L L E N D I N A. Polendinia, maybe? Not Mr. Sid, to be sure. No. Uh, so, Sid throughout this game talks a lot about how he didn't want his airships to be used for war and he's this big outgoing character uh, you know big personality big beard big goggles big wrench he fights with a hammer he's one of the few characters who can't cast spells but he's very he, he is the epitome in this game of technological advance he, he knows about mechanics he knows about explosives he knows about aeronautics he's also one of the older characters uh, you know in his mid-50s other than Tella and Fusoya, who we'll talk about later, he's the oldest character here, and he really does come across as—I called him a father figure earlier. He's, and and certainly he helped to raise Kane, Rosa, and Sid. But he also—he's he, kind of like that crazy Cecil. Sorry, he's also kind of that crazy uncle type character. He's—he's uh, he's just got a really big personality, and he's kind of the comic relief. I've always really liked this version of Sid. Even though Final Fantasy VI was my first Sid, this Sid is a lot more rambunctious. He's a lot more mischievous. He's a lot more crusty, whereas the Sid in Final Fantasy VI feels like he's kind of he's kind of down on himself all the time because he knows what he's done, and I, I understand that. Well, and this, this Sid also Sid...
0: becomes a member of your party. Right, right. Does at one point, as everyone in this game does, sacrifices himself for the team. So there's a right. There's, right.
1: there's a, a lot of sacrificing and almost deaths in this game.
0: Right, but a lot of memorable moments where and Six Sid has some memorable moments to be sure, but he just plays a smaller role in the story, an important one, but a smaller one. And this is the start we've had, Sid, before, as we talked about, but this is the start of his regular trope of playing a role in the technical advancements of the bad guys, even though he almost always ends up on the side of the good guys. Skip ahead about 10 to 15 seconds to avoid spoilers for Final Fantasy twelve. Except in right. twelve, where he plays a part in the advancements of the bad guys and r- remains, and it's just a bad guy. <laughs> right.
1: He's Yeah, he goes slightly bonkers. Right. Uh, So we love
0: this, Sid. Let's talk about our second of three Dark Knight characters in this game. We've already talked a little bit about Cecil, but Kane, I think, is just as compelling, if not more compelling, than the main character in this game. And that's one of the things that we just have not seen in Final Fantasy before and in a lot of other games before, that their cast of characters weren't that well thought out. Video games tend to be, you know, individual experiences, especially at the time you're Mario or you're Link or you're Simon Belmont or you are who you are. And in team-based games, the secondary characters tended to be just that, secondary. But here, Kane is given just as much time and development and intrigue and complexity and depth as cecil is and it's made clear right out of the gate like even in his character design we've seen dragoons before but this dude is clearly a badass he is the dragoon that is his his job title the dragoon right
1: right right well he's the commander of the dragoons i don't think in the original version you saw any other dragoons but in the ds version there's a couple other dragoons hanging around baring castle yeah
0: it's at least implied that they exist though
1: just his character design is really cool with that dragon themed helmet and he's got the spear he can jump in this game the jump command first appears here and yeah he's the one
0: he's got a sense of humor
1: yeah (laughs) yeah and kind of a foul mouth in the ds version yeah
0: cecil's very little almost no sense of humor like you said he went up to his room to brood (laughs) it's kane who's like dude come on buddy i'll go with you I know this sucks, but I'll be there by your side. And like, that's just a character that I think people are naturally drawn to the, the guy who's got his friends back. And it's funny because of course, again, spoilers looking forward, the thing that Kane is probably most well known for is that he goes back and forth, ends up under mind control, you know, antagonizes the party at several times, has a very difficult character arc throughout this game. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I feel bad for... In, in the same way that Leon in Final Fantasy II gets, goes to the dark side, C- Cain suffers a similar fate. But Leon seems to have... We, we talked about this before. He seems to have gone of his own volition. Kane gets his brain messed with a lot.
0: Right. always feel bad for those characters. It reminds me of... You still haven't seen this, but that second half of the season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with Fitz very similar, and it's terrible what happens to those people. So let's move to our third character,
1: Rosa. Rosa Rosa Farrell is our other character introduced here. She is a white mage. She's also an archer, though that doesn't really come into play much. Uh, She's much more known for being a white mage. And she is one of two female playable characters here. She's an interesting character. She sort of strikes this balance between the typical feminine roles but also being a strong character. And I don't like saying it that way because... I would prefer that typical feminine roles weren't considered weak that just feels kind of gross to say it that way but in general in fantasy games the female characters are the more are the softer characters the quieter characters the support characters and she fills that role and i think throughout final fantasy 4 there's a sort of comment on feminism or, or femininity and which characters exhibit the most strength and rosa for all her stereotypical femininity shows a lot of strength she's the one who and i'm going to go ahead with the plot a little bit here again is when cecil goes up to his room to brood she's the one who comes into the tower and says you're not weak you did stand up to the king you're going to go take on this other mission and it's going to be dangerous but you can handle it and she is she's still a support character which is almost too stereotypically feminine but at the same time, she does it well, and her strength is in her kindness and in her empathy. And I think she's a really interesting character for that. I think a lot of people want to look down on female characters who are healers because that it's too much what we've seen before. But Rosa fills the role so well, and she does it with a quiet strength as opposed to uh, a belligerent or aggressive strength, and I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah. I do too, and it's backed up again. I think, like you said, one of the reasons it works, I'm going to bring up another piece of music, but that scene is accompanied by the theme of love, one of Nobuo Uematsu's most widely known, most widely celebrated pieces of music. And if you think that's an easy designation to get, you haven't been paying very close attention to the podcast. That's (laughs) quite an achievement for a piece of music, and this scene is backed up by that, and I think that theme is... For her, exactly what you were just saying. It is both delicate, but strong and empowering and forward-moving. And that's what Rosa represents to me. As much as she is quiet and reserved, that's okay. Sometimes so is my brother. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that you aren't forward-moving and necessary to the success of the people around you who might be a little more aggressive, like you know, me (laughs) and that, that, you know, that you can't achieve your own success inside of that. And so that, or, or outside of that even. And I think she does both of those things. So yeah, that's also kind of our final scene and what we've called before the cold open where she says, you've got to go do this thing. So it is Rosa's bit of inspiration that really kicks off the story proper.
1: we are treated then to our splash page of text and so the Dark Knight Cecil was stripped of his command as the captain of the Red Wings he and the Master Dragoon Cain head toward the Dark Valley for the village of Mist and so on and we get Castle of Baron in the background and the two moons uh, hmm. very prominently in the sky there almost Tatooine-esque with Luke looking at the two sons of Tatooine it's a, a similar sort of image
0: homage I believe, purposeful
1: no, yes absolutely and we get the Final Fantasy theme.
0: As we did it's, in the first game uh, and the third game. And yeah, there it is.
1: And it's very heroic. The music that plays there builds up to the Final Fantasy theme. Is like trumpets sounding and, and Kane and Cecil are walking together out you know, through the halls of the castle and out to do their thing. Which is a bit ironic given what happens next. Yeah. So our heroes fight their way to the Valley of the Mist they go through the, the Cave of Mist, and they are warned several times in the Cave of Mist to turn back, don't do this, and eventually, before they're going to come out of the cave and into the Valley of Mist, they are attacked by the Mist Dragon, or the, the Eidolon of Mist, depending on your translation. And they fight it, they win, they go into town, and they were given, uh, depending on your translation, they were either they were given a package or a bomb ring, which is a bit overt, Or a carnelian signet. So it's it's a ring or a package of some sort that when you enter the town of the summoners, opens and a bunch of bomb monsters jump out and torch the town and kill everybody. And oh my god, we are the bad guys. We just committed genocide against the summoners. (laughs) And it does not feel good. This is... There's actually... Before you can leave the cave, there's a... You know, do you press forward or do you or before you're gonna fight the missed dragon, it's do you press forward or do you go back. So it actually gives you the option to basically not play the game, but then you don't get to play the game. So you have to click yes to fight the dragon, to kill the dragon, to go into the the summoner's village and, and attempt to commit genocide on behalf of the King of Baron. And it feels so gross. Yeah. Having done so, Cecil and Cain overhear somebody crying and they find a character who holds a very special place in my heart, Rydia. This is a young girl with bright green hair who is crying over the body of her dead mother uh, and it becomes clear to Cecil and Kane, our heroes.
0: Yeah, at this uh, point? Yeah.
1: That, through what Rydia is saying, that they basically killed her mother by killing the mist dragon. Her connection to the mist dragon made it so that she did not uh, that, that she was killed even before the bombs the town. There's a brief conversation here where they realize that oh, the king meant to kill all the summoners, and Cain says, well it's you know, it's a dirty job but this is what we were sent to do, and he's prepared to take out Rydia, and Cecil's like, dude! What are you doing? And for a moment the first time I played this I thought, oh, Cain is this morally ambiguous bad guy, but no, Cain was actually testing Cecil in this. He wants Cecil to object so that he can then say, I thought you might say that if we're going to do this, and this is, uh, again, back to that Final Fantasy theme of we're stronger together. Cain says, if we're going to do this, we got to get Rosa out of town and we got to go talk to all the other kingdoms and get them to unite against Baron.
0: Yeah, I so, love this moment know, because it could have been a cheap moment of character conflict or, as you said, just a way to turn and have Cain be a bad guy or something like that but it establishes early on that he has got his buddies back that they are going to do this thing together that he agrees with his moral objections to what's going on and like you said he was going to test him to make sure that he wasn't gone that he wasn't too far dark too far down the path of the dark night and in that moment they just decide to forsake Everything they've stood for, that they've sworn to protect, that they've sworn their entire lives to be about, and they do it with the two of them. They decide they're going to go back and get their friend, and they decide they're going to take this girl with them.
1: Right. And that's where things maybe don't work out so well, because Rydia's not having it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Why these would guys she just go killed her them. mother.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She, Her mother just died at their hands, sort of, in an act of what seems to me to be instinctual spell casting. She summons. Titan, the Archean of kicking Your Ass. And there's this huge earthquake and a rift opens and when Cecil and comes to, Cain is nowhere to be found, but is right here. So he can't go back the way he came because there's this big crevice in the way. So he takes Ridia to the nearest town, which is a town called Kaipo. K-A-I-P-O. Ridia wakes up but he still doesn't want she still doesn't want to have anything to do with Cecil. But in the night, some Baronian soldiers show up, and they're ready to take Rydia. But Cecil stands up to them. He fights them off, and and Rydia decides she can trust him at that point.
0: Yeah, he kills some soldiers that used to fight under his command, right there.
1: In the morning, they find that Rosa has escaped Baron on her own and followed them and made it to the town of Kaipo, but then she came down with desert fever. And the only cure for desert fever is a sand pearl from the kingdom of Damcyan.
0: As everyone knows.
1: Common knowledge in this world. So Cecil and Rydia decide to set off that way. There's an underground tunnel to get there, and in the underground tunnel, we meet the sage Tella. Yeah. So Tella is our second oldest character of this group, if Sid is in his 50s, I think uh, Tella's meant to be in his 60s or so. Yeah. And he definitely plays the the role of the kooky mentor type. He is an old wizard. He's been an old wizard for a very long time. He gets these cool kind of purple sunglasses, big white beard, crazy Albert Einstein hair. And he is extraordinarily powerful, except he can't remember all his spells. Yeah. So he's not as powerful as he used to be. And there's this cool gameplay bit where as he levels up, some of his stats get worse.
0: Yeah, he's an interesting character for a lot of reasons, including the gameplay stuff and, of course, his familial ties. Everything that he's doing is about his family, and so in that way, Tella is, I think, right at the heart of the central themes of this game. His whole thing is about protecting his family and being there, and uh, that's where the whole "Spoony Bard line comes from, which we'll get to in a minute, but... Yeah, very, even though, like you said, a kooky, he strikes that interesting balance because he's very strange and oftentimes is played for laughs, but is like the emotional core of the game.
1: Right. So Tella is on his way to Dam Cyan because his daughter, Anna, has eloped with a bard. A, a spoony bard. bard. So they, they get through the tunnel and they make it to Dam Cyan just in time to see the Red Wings bomb Damcyan and seize the fire crystal. So now the Kingdom of Baron has the water crystal and the fire crystal. And Tella of course is very upset because his daughter's here. Yeah. So they get into the town of Damcyan and they find Anna and they find the bard Gilbert who's actually Prince Edward Chris von Muir of Damcyan and he's going to become king of Damcyan one day, probably very soon given what just happened to Damcyan.
0: Yeah, it just Uh, got bombarded by the fleet of airships we saw at the beginning of the game under command of the main hero, the Red Wings, have blown this place to smithereens.
1: We learn from Edward that the Red Wings are under new command. They're under command of a man named Golbez, another dark knight. We also learn that in the attack, Anna shielded Edward from the bomb's and that's why she is now dying, and Tella is furious. So Tella is prepared to attack and presumably kill Prince Edward. But Anna stops him. She she proclaims her love for both her father and for the prince. She asks that Tella forgive her for running away, for abandoning him, uh, for being selfish. And and he says, of course, that you know he he comes to an understanding that her love isn't selfish but rather that is an extension of him in a way because you know he raised her so he raised a, a loving person and it's not Edward's fault that the Red Wings attack.
0: It is of course during that altercation between Tella and Edward that we get the famous spoony Bard line. Uh, Tella in a moment of extreme rage says something that wasn't probably intended to make us all laugh, not really a moment where they were going for laughter, but it's something that's become so well known about this game that they've kept it in further iterations. As we've said before, I think both of us really like that about it, though I will say... If I was trying to adapt this game and its story for another audience, I probably would somewhere... I, I definitely would somewhere make sure somebody said the line of dialogue, you, Spoony Bard. But I probably wouldn't put it in this moment. What Tella was really uh, going mm. for in a moment of okay. rage, I think in either a show or a film would be better served, even with the line, you son of a bitch. And sure. Because you don't want to undercut the emotion of this moment. And I think because back on the Super Nintendo in those days, we were so used to being able to kind of separate those things and accept a certain amount of, of symbolism in our games. And as we've talked about, this is, you know, these are representations of events. And we also understood that translations back in the day was were all pretty tough. And this was certainly no, all your base are belong to us. And this game had its bona fides established as a solid serious dramatic game. So this one thing people were like, yeah, it's fine, but I I wouldn't want to ruin the moment.
1: Fair enough. Depending on the actor. But still, yeah, the the line the line reads as goofy no matter how you say it. No right. matter the gravitas.
0: But in this so, moment we also discover that Edward as he says himself in a line of dialogue is a coward
1: yeah and edward's fear and emotion are not really treated with kindness in this game he uh one of the things he'll do in combat is he will run away uh he is smacked around like he's literally smacked by cecil at one point rydia calls him a coward he is browbeaten into helping them go find the sand pearl so tell a, in a fit of rage, leaves trying to seek revenge against Golbez. So it's just Cecil, Rydia, and now Edward trying to go find the sand pearl to save Rosa. And yeah, Edward is hes grief-stricken, he's afraid, and he's kind of badly treated here.
0: Yeah, I didn't really like the way that they treated him either. Although, I thought it was interesting the way Rydia was growing into her role as this is war. Like, you think you've got it bad. All my people are dead. My whole hometown has burned down. And now I'm adventuring across the world with the man responsible. Like, you can maybe get over your stuff because we've got more important things to do. I thought that was an interesting way for her character to suddenly go.
1: but. Though, in fairness, Edward's town is burned down and almost everybody he knows is dead, too.
0: Right. So, yeah. And, so and, and she's
1: handling it differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Um,
0: but And it is an inversion of the thing you were talking about. In that moment, the typical roles, I guess, we would see of strength and weakness. So I'm not necessarily convinced she's being strong and he's being weak either. But uh, they're at least inverted right there. And she's the one sure. slapping him around saying, get your stuff together. We got to go.
1: So Edward agrees, and he does start to find some courage and strength from his friends here. They will become his friends, but his compatriots. So they go to the antlion's den where they can find the sand pearl. Now, if I could take a brief moment to divert here. An antlion is a real thing. Adult antlions basically look like dragonflies, but antlion larvae really do dig these pits and then aggressively eat whatever falls into the pit. So, And then it's also a, a... monster in D &D, and i'm pretty sure the ant line in final fantasy is a direct representation of the D &D monster because it's much bigger and it's got giant pinchers and stuff but that is a real thing like this so when they go to the pit and then it hides under the sand and they've got to not attack it while it hides under the sand that's an basically a, a real creature just much much smaller cool so they get the pearl they go back to kaipo they heal rosa and rosa informs them that Baron is preparing to get the next crystal, the Crystal of Wind, from Fabul, which is a, a kingdom of monks. Despite Cecil's protests, Rosa joins the party and they set out for Mount Hobbes. There's a nice moment here as they ascend Mount Hobbes where there's a big block of ice blocking the way. And Rydia can melt it because she's got black magic. She can cast fire and melt it, but she's afraid to Because her city was just burned, so now she's got this fear of fire. And it's worth noting that Edward's encouragement of Rydia is much gentler than Rydia's encouragement of Edward. It's with Rosa and Edward they're able to convince her to go ahead and use her fire magic so that they can continue on their journey. Once they get across Mount Hobbs, they find a monk fighting off a bunch of monsters. And here we are introduced to Yang Feng Liden. He is another one of our characters who does not cast spells, but he gets the kick maneuver, which allows him to fly across the screen and attack everybody at once, and it's really, really cool.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable how satisfying that little animation is. It's awesome. (laughs) He's awesome. I love Yang, even though he probably gets some of the least amount of character development of any of these guys. His role is essentially badass monk dude with a little bit of wisdom who mostly just, you know does his job and he he doesn't he kind of comes in without needing a whole lot of character development he's far more centered than any of the rest of our cast of deeply conflicted people who have all kinds of issues going on he's got his goals for sure but he's got his stuff together pretty much
1: (laughs) he is a he's a happily married man he knows his place in his kingdom he knows his place as a warrior and an adventurer and, yeah, he is, he is definitely more of a mentor type. He's, he knows what he's about, and he's ready to do it.
0: And he just comes in with more confidence, and I think it's a nice yeah. breath of fresh air at that moment in the story that's been kind of beating you down, I think in a really good way, but at that moment when he comes out on the top of that mountain just kicks all those goblins' asses, and you're just like, yeah, finally, a little bit of positivity.
1: <laughs> so F- Yang joins the group. They go to Fabul, and the the king of Fabul is not immediately prepared to trust the group because Cecil's a dark knight, and he knows Cecil's attached to Baron. But Yang testifies, so to speak, on their behalf, and they believe that an attack by Baron is imminent. So they get their monks together to defend the castle, and our heroes uh, end up in the crystal room, and that is when our old friend Cain reappears.
0: And there's a fair amount of confusion at this point, because instead of our old friend Kane showing up to help us on our quest, he immediately attacks the group. His friend, his buddy. And we know it has already been established, as we saw with their encounter with Ridia, that Kane wasn't just going to flip on his buddy for power or riches. We know that. So there's a deep level of confusion here that is not resolved as Kane just attacks the party and pretty much makes quick work of them, makes them look silly, which adds to his badass credibility, by the way.
1: Golbez also arrives during this fight. We get to see him for the first time. He's a tall guy, big, broad, set of armor, awesome cape, full face helmet.
0: Yeah, one of the things we talked about in the Empire versus Rebels podcast was about the lack of faces and the increasing mechanical nature of the Empire. And it's funny that with the three characters in the room at this point, all three Dark Knight characters—Cecil, Kane, and Golbez—that their sort of prog- their designs reflect the progression of. Dark Knight trope up to Golbez, whose face is completely obscured.
1: So Golbez kidnaps Rosa and takes the crystal, and he and Cain decide to leave our heroes intact. And that leaves our heroes to decide what to do next. So they decide what they need to do is get to Baron to stop this nonsense and, and take the crystals back. They get on a ship, and they head that way. And once again, things go off the rails. There's this big storm, and their ship is attacked by a giant sea monster called Leviathan. We've talked about Leviathan before, right? Yeah, we've talked about Leviathan in the summons episode. Leviathan tends to view humanity as weak and lesser, and this Leviathan is maybe a little more magnanimous than that, but not a lot, because Rydia goes overboard, and Leviathan swallows her. And then, in a moment of heroic nonsense... Yang jumps in the sea after her, as though he could save her from Leviathan. Doesn't go well. The ship is wrecked, and Cecil washes up on the shores of Mycidia alone. last time Susa was in Mycidia, he did not treat these people well. And they are ready to let him know about it. They immediately attack him. They don't attack with elemental spells. They don't attack with fire and fury, so to speak. Instead, they attack with status effects, which is kind of like, I appreciate that. It's like, we're going to disable you. We're going to make it so you can't do what you did before. So they subdue him with status effects and they take him to see the Elder. And the Elder, who knows of a prophecy, tells Cecil that what he needs to go is to go to Mount Ordeals. It's like the motive impediments. In the
0: Castle of Inconvenience. Right. Because- Again, from, <laughs> Final I. from Final Fantasy One, From Final
1: Fantasy One. So he, the Elder, tells Cecil Harvey... That he needs to go to the Mount Ordeals. And to accompany him on his trek up the Mount of Ordeals are Palam and Porum, a pair of twin mages. And they, yeah, they are. Yeah, he's so got to give him a
0: couple of teammates because he's all by himself. He doesn't have any teammates right now, and there's powerful magical beasts upon Mount of Impediments. And uh-huh. so uh-huh. He, he has to give him a couple of companions. Palam and Porum.
1: And they're so great. Palam and Porum take the archetype of the savant because they are very young. They're like seven or eight and they are savants. One is a white mage and one is a black mage and then they have a special ability where working together they can fire off this big blast of magic. And the sister is always berating the brother for being such a boy and it's really, I think they're pretty great. I like them a lot.
0: I do too, and they're a fun bit of magical trope playing uh, upon that whole, like you said, that because they're so powerful magically that that's also a bit of their savantness, and so while they're kind of cute and cuddly, they're also extremely dangerous. Right, right, right. (laughs) And and that's a fun, yeah, And, and fan favorites for a long time because of something we'll get to later. We'll put that off later, but well known for, again, another famous moment of sacrifice
1: so our party continues up the mountain they reunite with tella who is climbing the mount of ordeals because he's trying to regain his memory of all those spells he used to have and in particular he wants the power of meteor because that is supposed to be the spell of spells
0: or as it was translated originally Medio, because medio. they didn't have enough,
1: <laughs> was there not space, enough space for that R. okay yeah right.
0: but actually kind of like Medio, and how that sounds like that's just kind of cool
1: it's kind of similar to the way Minwu was going to find the Ultima spell. Here, Tella is seeking the power of Meteor, uh, which would okay. show up again in other Final Fantasies, most notably Seven. Yeah. <laughs> so Golbez sends the Archfiend of Earth, Skarmiglione, to stop Cecil. And this is the first time we've run into any elemental fiends since Final Fantasy I. The Archfiend of Earth is not terribly powerful uh, in this first go-around hint hint so our four characters one dark knight and three mages are able to take him out and then cecil is called to the summit of mount ordeals by a mysterious voice the mysterious voice claims that cecil is his son and you go into this big crystal room and there's a mirror at the far end and cecil the dark knight looks into the mirror and sees a reflection of himself and the voice tells him that he can be more than a Dark Knight, that he can purge the darkness from him, if he is willing, and and Cecil is willing. So he he transforms, he he gets a status quo change, he gets an upgrade, if you will, from a Dark Knight into a Paladin, and then from the mirror, the reflection of the Dark Knight steps, and much as Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker were mirrors of each other, much as perhaps spoiler Kylo Ren and Rey are mirrors for each other the paladin Cecil has to fight the dark knight Cecil and this is a fun gameplay mechanic also in that as the paladin you're supposed to not attack Uh, and yeah you, you learn that through various prompts throughout the fight so by not attacking by defending Cecil is able to purge himself of the darkness and become a paladin at the same time, Tulla is able to get his meteor spell. <laughs> right.
0: I think this. Yeah, right, right, right. I I think for people who you know are really into the series and remember their experiences with it as much as we do, the scene in mist, where like you said, it just it has an effect on you. It makes you feel gross. It makes you feel bad about your own actions in the game and what has just happened. And so, a very memorable scene. But I think this. When Cecil Becomes a Paladin is probably the first super famous moment, story-driven Final Fantasy thing that even people who aren't even necessarily into the series, they know Cecil Becomes a Paladin. They had heard about this moment where the main character, who had looked one way the whole game, all of a sudden looks a different way, and his calling becomes something different. And video games didn't really do that at the time. Right. And... So this is seen as one of the early examples that both this game and this series were on another level when it came to reaching their audience from a storytelling standpoint. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we meet the dwarves, lose the crystals, and gain an edge.